Hello, I'm Professor Bob Hewish from the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. You're listening to GDP, the Global Development Primer, the podcast dedicated to all issues in international development studies. Follow me on Twitter at Professor Hewish. This week on GDP, the Global Development Primer podcast, we're joined with Amanda Glassman, who's the Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and also serves as Chief Executive Officer of CGD Europe. Her research focuses on priority setting, resource allocation, and value for money in global health, as well as data for development. Prior to her current position, she served as Director for Global Health Policy at the Center for Global Development for Global Development from 2010 to 2016. And has more than 25 years of experience working on health and social protection policy and programs in Latin America and elsewhere in the developing world. So today we're happy to have Amanda Glassman join us to talk about maybe a little bit of forecasting of, uh, of what uh, world leaders should think and do uh, in terms of avoiding the next global pandemic uh, coming up. Amanda. Welcome to GDP. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you. Absolutely. So we've got some uh, some high-level meetings coming up uh, with the spring meetings of the IMF, the World Bank. They're, they're sitting down to, uh, to have their, their spring meetings. And I'm sure many people at those meetings would agree that another global pandemic should be avoided at all costs. So let me ask you this. What should world leaders be doing and thinking to avoid another pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it's almost as if we haven't learned the lessons yet of COVID-19 that, of course, is still with us in so many ways. Um, In fact, India is seeing increasing case numbers and hospitalizations now. Um, And that's because, you know, there there really hasn't been a coordinated global effort to try and um, reduce the, the health consequences of what's happening. Um, So I think one thing that global leaders need to do almost immediately is to learn the lessons of what just happened to us. Um, There are a couple of different things ahead that uh, leaders should think about. One is that there are lots of different kinds of pathogens. Not all of them have the potential to cause a pandemic. So something like Ebola, chikungunya, Zika, these are pathogens we are familiar with. But we have outbreaks uh, and we still have to keep our eye on those and we have to respond quickly So governments need to prepare for those kinds of things. But those aren't the kind of massive global event that we've just experienced. But there is also a non-negligible risk of another COVID-19-sized event. Um, And and that risk is not too different than major weather, um, uh, you know, big big storms or something like that that could really cause a lot of damage. So governments really need to prepare for the next one and put all the mechanisms in place that would enable us to be able to spot it quickly, to take measures quickly, to give health workers uh, protective equipment, um, to develop and deploy medical countermeasures like vaccines as quickly as possible. All of those things are kind of lessons learned, but we haven't actually done anything about it yet. So that's that's what I have my eye on. So so that's a that's a good question. Now we, we haven't done anything. Um, how come? I mean, it, it seemed like for such a truly global 
unifying experience uh, in many ways, uh, as awful as it is, the pandemic is one of them where it's, it's touched everywhere at this point. Uh, there's no one on the face of the planet that doesn't have some relationship or story with, with, with COVID. So what was it that, that keeps these divisions so, so, so prevalent and, and, and what could world leaders do to try to overcome this in the future? Yeah. So, I mean, first to say, you know, there was a response to COVID. It just came quite late. There were parts of the response that were incredibly fast and impressive, you know, the development of the mRNA vaccines and the scaling up of their production. On the downside, there was terrible inequity in the distribution of those vaccines, particularly in the early months, um, which caused a lot of unnecessary death and disease uh, around the world. So, you know, one of the things that leaders really have to do is to think about how to pre-position the money and the manufacturing agreements so that when something hits, whether it's a pandemic influenza, a new coronavirus, you know, we're ready to go. Um, I think there's a lot of discussion now about whether there needs to be more globally distributed manufacturing, because, of course, we saw vaccine nationalism during the COVID-19 response where, for example, India put an export ban in place or high-income countries sort of captured all of the available supply very quickly and there was just nothing left um, for low- and middle-income countries or those that were purchasing on their behalf like COVAX. So there is this discussion about, you know, growing regional manufacturing capacities um, and developing more self-sufficiency from countries themselves. Um, And then there are like really quotidian kinds of things that need to happen, which is that governments, for example, need to treat it a little bit like a natural disaster. They have to have the budget flexibilities that would enable them to purchase or trial vaccines on a very accelerated basis. Um, There is a need to communicate more clearly with the populace of the public about what's going on. Um, there's just an enormous amount of panic, and that that in itself led to you know economic consequences and chilling effects on labor market participation and growth. So there's just so much to be done. Um, I would say, like even in countries like Sub-Saharan Africa, a lot of the basics just aren't there still. You know, like access to water and sanitation. You know, which does help spread disease if you don't have it. Um, you know, if if we have an influenza where uh, there's, you know, spread by contact, you know, there's just not the place to easily wash your hands in some places and communities. So sort of dealing with those basics is super important as well. So there's a lot of, lot of moving parts in there. And I don't know, maybe we can kind of quickly rifle through some of them. But one of the, one of the things that sort of jumped to my mind when you're, when you're talking about this is that on one level, there's, there's challenges of trying to get that We'll get countries on the same page, right? Mm-hmm. That to to not hoard vaccines or not to, you know, as, as one person put it very well, you know, or develop vaccines that just simply can't be transported to hard to get places. Mm-hmm. I think what was it was the, the first the first Pfizer um, vaccine was like when it had to be stored at minus seventy five or something right. that you would never be able to do in in, in sub Saharan Africa, uh, you know, part, yeah. parts like that. But what about some of the the challenges that were faced by the measures put in before the vaccines started to roll out. Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, I'm thinking about the lockdowns and I'm thinking about the, 
the shelter in place and quarantine measures all put in that had massive social consequences. And it wasn't necessarily international groups that were tasked with, uh, you know, compensating people for it. It came down to, you know, national, if not provincial, state or county Mm -hmm. or even municipal uh, budgets to help with that. Do, Do you have any thoughts on on that? Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting how different countries were differently draconian or not draconian in the way that they implemented the initial response to the spread of the disease. So first to say, you know, when there isn't a novel pathogen like this, when you don't know what the case fatality rate is or how quickly it spreads, you know, there is a period of time that's just total uncertainty And in those cases, it really is probably a good idea to be quite conservative in your early approach and and discourage contact. But once we knew that the case fatality rate of COVID, this is even prior to vaccine, was about 1%. Okay, again, it affected a certain group of people, older people, people that were immune compromised. Um, It didn't affect kids so much. So once we knew that, you would have expected a little bit more nuance in the implementation of policies, but somehow the facts just didn't get out as needed. And it's not just facts to policymakers, but it's also facts to the public, right? Because there's a lot of self, um, you know, your own kind of risk aversion behavior that plays a role in all of this. But, you know, I really look at Latin America, you know, a country like Peru had enormously draconian measures. Like you couldn't, walk your dog outside, even if you were far away from people, uh, even if you were dressed in a PPE. So there were like crazy pictures of people like lowering their dog from an apartment building or something like that. Or they would do crazy things like they would say, oh, we want to reduce people uh, going outside. We're going to have a day when men can go out and a day when women could go out, which was also crazy because that actually made more people go out on certain days. So well, yeah, I've never heard of a virus being uh, yeah. you know, gender discriminatory like that. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, and I think uh, so. There, there was obviously continuum. The UK uh, lockdown was particularly strict. Um, there were uh, prohibitions against being in open space. You know, again. It's, it is a 1% fatality rate is still a high fatality rate of a large number of people, given how quickly this thing moved. Um, and there was this uncertainty. But once we knew, we didn't see an enormous amount of nuance in the way that policies were being implemented and understood by, and certainly they were interpreted differently in every country around the world. So that to me also seems like a failure in kind of science communication in, in helping people understand what we know about risks, because people really are able to understand complex things. I think that that's another really interesting part of this. Like people really became experts in all of this. Right. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess the big lesson learned is around like risk first, establishing the facts quickly about the basic characteristics of the pathogen. And then second, really having a kind of evidence-based approach to the public health measures that you would take early. You know, again, during the period of uncertainty, totally understandable to be conservative. But after that, you know, it should be adjusted to what we know. Right. So knowledge improves that we know what measures work. We know what measures don't work and, you know, kind of keep that evolution going. So was there was there uh, a particular uh, communication strategy by by any nations that you've looked at that have that did a good job? Uh, or others that just, you know, shouldn't 
shouldn't be repeated in the future. Yeah. I mean, well, first to say, you know, no country did amazingly well in all of this. Um, but, uh, you know, some countries like, and some countries did well at the beginning and the first several rounds of, or, or, uh, outbreak or what's the better word, you know, when the variants, well, the waves. Prominent. yeah, the yeah. waves exactly. Yeah. Um, but then had to face the music later. Um, but on the other hand, when they had to face the music, um, they were, they were, they had a population that was mostly immunized. So, I mean, I would say in terms of good news stories early, you know, a country like Chile, that was very forward leaning on looking at new vaccines, no matter where they came from. And they were very clear what we need to do is roll out quickly. Um, and they had a, they, they had a kind of nuanced approach of, you know, distancing and masks and all the rest, but they, they also enabled people to go outside uh, and be out in fresh air. Like Singapore would be another example of that. Most countries did, you know, impose these travel bans that lasted a long time. Um, you know, the way this thing moves, there was just no chance of getting ahead of it. So like all of that seemed a bit, you know, what people call pandemic theater at a certain point. Right. Um, and, and, probably helped create a kind of a, a lack of solidarity in the sense that even though all of us were going to get it or we're spreading it around or we're exposed to it um, in lots of different ways, there was always this idea of like, oh, it's coming from somewhere else. And it's like yeah. the, the call is inside the house, people. <laughs> yeah, that that was a huge factor. And yeah. as you know, the, you have, you know, New Zealand uh, definitely yeah. sort of adopted that kind of uh imagery of it um province of nova scotia and in canada same sort of thing like you know if you were from away then you were at higher risk than uh, say a hospital worker uh, mm-hmm. who maybe have active uh, exposure to to the virus and you know what's wild about that is it it, it really kind of challenges our our presumptions about what uh you know about how, how borders are somehow supposed to be yeah. uh, tools of keeping us healthy. Borders are incredibly porous, and they're incredibly complicated social geographies that viruses will, you know, find yeah. a way around. It, it might, in terms of the volume of traffic of people crossing, that might be lowered, but it's certainly not going to to overcome the capabilities of a of a coronavirus in that way. Exactly, and and probably not an extremely infectious influenza, right? So. Um, and, and, and the other thing that this kind of attitude is, is, is creates problems for is, you know, like if you remember, um, H5N1, you know, actually there were cases in California, but it was Mexico that reported first Mm -hmm. and, you know, travel stopped to Mexico, their GDP fell by like 5%, you know, it was so traumatic. And so later the health authorities of that government came and said, you know, we want to be compensated for having reported first, even though, you know, right in the United States, you had cases at around the same time, you know, and no one said they were going to stop going to California. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's that that kind of um, it creates a disincentive to report early. Um, and we really don't have an easy answer for that still. Um, you know, there's there's these negotiations around a pandemic treaty and there's the international health regulations that require you to report early. But I really worry that one of the, again, not a science based uh, insight, but that, you know, the, the experience that people have had have been like, well, let's just don't ask, don't tell until it becomes a real problem. You yeah. Know, and, and- a wait and see approach. 
Exactly. That's that's doesn't seem to be the uh, the first choice of any pandemic playbook. And you know that's a really good point to uh, to focus on. And the other the other angle I'm just sort of thinking about at the moment here is that you know some countries you know in terms of those those first few months where uh, you know many health experts were thinking oh this is going to just upend, uh, but it turned out that there was actually quite. A bit of resiliency, if not even vibrancy, and even new lessons learned uh, in pandemic management, mm-hmm. uh, were places like India, like the yeah. the slums in Mumbai. I mean, people yeah. thought right away that how the how in the world are we we're going to see quarantine uh, go on when you know you have one of the most condensed uh, slums in in any urban environment, and sure enough, in those those first forty to sixty days. Uh, the case counts were incredibly low when they set up the the fever camps and mm-hmm. and were you know taking people out and giving them care and treatment and isolating and doing testing. Same thing can maybe also be said like a country like Cuba, where you know kind of resource uh, skint and and doing a lot of international cooperation saw some pretty good stuff, uh, keeping their case counts down. And uh, there's a whole list of examples. I mean, Turkey even had a really innovative uh, bubble system based on schools. Mm-hmm. But all of that just seemed to to lose steam. Uh, and it, it, you know, did did the variants just overwhelm those methods, or mm-hmm. did did governments just lose the capability to keep those programs in place? Like I know the ones in India, uh, funding just dried up. They just couldn't. They said, "No, we can't afford to do this forever." And uh, you know, Cuba made some some hasty economic decisions as well that that led to to increasing cases. And you know, is that is that something where the virus itself beats us, or is it kind of our own domestic planning that that needs to be improved? Well, I think you know, especially in um, lower income countries, there's an opportunity cost of money that's so high, right? Like if I spend time, you know, isolating COVID fevers. Um, you know, I'm not doing something else because it's just a very uh, restricted financing situation. And, and, you know, if you just look at like how much low and middle income countries spent in response to this emergency versus what was spent in high income countries, even just as a share of GDP, it's like an order of magnitude difference, like 1% increase versus an 8% increase. So that's just like the reality of, of, of resource constraints. I think the other, the other thing that happened is that the disease spread everywhere. Everyone had been exposed. These were younger populations. Um, they had, you know, India had that first terrible wave. But after that, you know, of course, there is excess mortality. Um, and it's still really significant. But it's not overwhelming hospitals in the same way that it was during the the first surge, the Delta surge. Right. So I think that is what happened. Plus the vaccines were rolling out. I think the other thing is people really bet on the vaccines as the mitigation strategy. Um, and, you know, to some extent that works. And, you know, some countries really, Latin America, incredibly, you know, even though they had all these crazy, some of the countries had the crazy lockdowns, the speed of their vaccination uh, rollout after they had vaccine, there was a delay there was incredibly fast. And I mean, they were at like 90% with two doses within, you know, two months, there was just huge demand. They had programs that worked well. Um, So, you know, that's also a reason why some of the other public health measures were sort of interrupted. 
Um, you know, and I, I think the big question is for all of us is sort of what are the long-term sequelae of repeat exposures and repeat um, infections? And, you know, you read some of the, you know, and a lot of that explains perhaps the sort of persistence of excess mortality that it's uh, pre, you know, can just predispose you to cardiovascular disease and the neurological issues and the long COVID and some share of the population. So all of that's still out there. But on the other hand, low-income countries are like grappling with other problems. You know, some of these countries are not able to treat diabetes, to manage diabetes. So like, you know, diabetes affects a huge share of the population and people are dying from lack of insulin. So, you know, they just have to make those kinds of difficult trade-offs um, in poorer countries. Right, exactly. It's it, the the global health map isn't just uh, isn't one layer. It, it's yeah. it, like you said, we could we could totally do about five more episodes uh, talking about this sort of thing. But let me ask you just one last question. Is there is there one area where you feel we remain vulnerable for a future global health crisis like a pandemic? Well, you know, when you ask, well, I think the, the good news is that there was this rapid scale up in vaccine production. So there's now this very recent experience in doing that quickly. Um, and if it was something like a pandemic potential influenza, um, where the science of the vaccine is familiar to everyone all over the world, I feel pretty confident confident that there would be um, a fairly easy route to sort of producing quickly. Where we are still in problems is um, sort of data sharing, incentives for reporting early and shutting it down. Um the sort of, so kind of establishing the facts, I think still remains a big challenge in a lot of countries. So one of the things that really stood out to me is that in sub-Saharan Africa, even after all the money that uh, external sources have invested in the HIV AIDS and malaria TB um, threats, we still have 40% of deaths that go unreported in any given year. Right. So would we even have known, you know, if COVID had been, you know, there are other kind of things to that one can monitor, like, you know, what's happening in urban hospitals. But, you know, the bottom line is that you're not seeing cases until it's way too late in a lot of countries. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, the whole enterprise of public health has been pretty beat up after this. And some countries have decided, okay, great, this is a good time to reform and put more money in it. Others have said, hey, we just spent, you know, a ton of money in the health sector for the past two years. We're done with that now. (laughs) We're moving on. So I think, you know, sort of the financing side and the will to learn and reform is still missing in action. Um, there is some good news that at the World Bank, they set up this pandemic fund um, that's beginning to make investments in pandemic preparedness. But, you know, the the commissions that have been working on this for the past year suggest that we need about $10 billion additional every year to do this well. And so far, all the countries in the world have given $1.5 billion. So, and, you know, if you think about 10 billion as a share of the economic losses of COVID in the trillions, you know, it's just like 0.000%. So this is, you know, we're still living with that, you know, lack of uh, prioritization of this important issue for the reasons that we've discussed. Oh man. And that's, um, that's a bit of a clarion call for, uh, 
for the meetings coming up at um, IMF, World Bank, and uh, any other uh, world leaders that are engaging in, in high-level talks, that we're just we're coming out of the one of the most massive pandemics in human history, and we're not prepared for the next one. So. Yeah. Uh, Amanda, you've, you've given us uh, quite a bit to think about. So I, I really do want to thank you for, for taking the time to join us on on GDP. And uh, I, I have no doubt we'll, uh, we'll have the opportunity to talk again about some of these other things that we should be concerned about in the future. Thank you so much. 